All right, happy Christians. I would in invite you to begin to find your places. We are privileged this morning. Um, I am not going to be preaching. Instead, we are going to have um, a reflection from Kevin. Kevin Gosa is uh, an elder in the church here, and uh, he's a musician, a lifetime student of music. He's also a man of great faith, and uh, he is going to share with us something about what his faith and what music, um, what worship, what it's all meant to him uh, as a way of enlarging our vision of God and of worship and of music. So, I'm going to have Kimberly read the, the verses I chose for this morning. Thank you, Kimberly. It's taken from Hebrews 11. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what, is vis what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. By faith, Noah, when warmed about things not yet seen and holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, Abraham, when called to go a distance, he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed, and went. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I didn't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and rooted foreign enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. Well, <clears throat> as Tony said, my name is Kevin. I am, in fact, an elder here, which is probably the only thing that qualifies me to uh, deliver a reflection. I'm glad he said reflection, because when you're not the teaching elder, you're not the pastor. What is it that then you're doing? Like, am I technically teaching? Is this a sermon? And I, I fretted over what to call this um, for all of three or four minutes. But I'm glad that Tony said reflection because that's what I want to do this morning. I kind of want to reflect um, back on my life. I've been an elder for about two years. And, um, you know, from time to time, Tony ropes an elder into getting up in front and sharing. And I drew the short straw this time. But uh, truth be told, I actually like being up in front of people. Uh, I'm often up in front leading worship or I'm playing in the ensemble, worshiping in that way. And I like being in front of people, and it's a little weird because most people hate being up in front of people. And uh, I will talk about how I got to to learn to like this, but when Tony first asked me um, 
Let's play it in one second. Just to be on the safe side. Start the timer. I think you probably all don't want to be here the rest of the day. Uh, when he asked me to do this, I, I got to thinking, oh, sweet, what am I going to talk about? I can talk about whatever I want. This is amazing, the power, the absolute power. Um, and so I came up with this amazing idea. I was going to use scripture and my own research over the years as a musician and a uh, musicologist and all those other things that I've done um, to talk about the nature and limits of time as it relates to human existence, God's eternality, and the ephemerality of music. And so when I was having lunch with Tony excitedly telling him that this was my subject matter, he, he promptly spit out the hot pho he was consuming at the time and looked at me and said, that's a terrible idea. And I said, okay, fine. What, what should I do then? What's, what's better than that? And this is what he said. He said, you should tell your story. He said, the people want to know you. They want to know what you love and how you got here. This isn't a lecture. It's a chance to share yourself with your church family. And I resisted for a moment, and then he insisted for a few more moments, and so here we are. Well, for starters, I should tell you, many of you who know me, I'm not short on words. And so I have this massive timer right here to protect you and myself. And I thought there was some irony in that I had conceived of talking about time for this, this message and then realized that my verbosity knows no limits, time or space. Uh, so rather than bore you with an excruciatingly dull narrative of my background and how I was born on Bastille Day, of course not the actual Bastille Day, that would make me 226 years old, but I was born on July 14th, and how did I get from that moment long ago to this moment here, I, I want to focus in on something smaller than that. I want to I share with you a part of my story that is, is a little bit more difficult to see. And I want you to participate in that story this morning, to realize that the, this thing that we're doing right now is a part of the story, part of my journey that God is taking me on. And, and when I think of that story, I don't think about the big things. It's, I mean, I do think about the big things. It's easy to think about those things. Um, the major characters in my life, uh, the major events that have driven my uh, existence up to this point. Uh, and he's done beautiful and, and surprising work in that, in that space. For example, I'm married to my amazing wife, and I have great children, and I do not live in my parents' basement. Although my parents live in Florida, and they don't have a basement, so I think they will got ahead of me on that one. It just took away the option right out of the gate. We'll go down there, and then there's no way he can come back and sneak in. Those are the obvious things in life. And we all have stories like that, that we remember the big things. Uh, the time you moved to this city and how much of an impact that had on your story and your journey. Um, the time you changed your major and decided to reshape the course of your life. Or that time the girl in the middle school said you had a huge nose. Um, and I still hate the name Ginger today as a result of that traumatizing experience. Um, but my parents, my family, my children, these are our obvious drivers of my own narrative, of the story and the journey that, that God has put me on. And the big things are right there like huge billboards. They are hard to miss. But where God continues to amaze me is in the small things, the seemingly insignificant things. God loves those small things, right? A little baby, a mustard seed, a piece of bread, and a sip of wine a bit of dust. He uses those really, really small things to do incredible things in our world and in our own lives. But the trouble with the small things is that they're easy to miss. You have to be looking for them. Sometimes you have to stop and to reflect 
One might go so far as to suggest that you need to practice a few of the classic spiritual disciplines, perhaps meditation, or silence, or solitude. And of course, you can try to squeeze that all in between uh, segments on Sports Center, but that constant banana, banana, really kind of gets in the way of, of uh, that meditative experience. And so we often avoid it. We often run from doing that because we're really busy. We all have a lot going on in our lives between work and family and, and our long-term career trajectory and all the regrets that we have and all the hopes that we have. And oftentimes, as, a, as one of my friends put it, we can end up sleepwalking through life. That we just keep going about the moments day by day by day over and over and over again, the activities, stringing one next to another, never really amounting to investing ourselves fully in the things that we love, the things that God has given us to love. I love the saxophone, among other things. I was playing this morning in the interlude, and I'll be playing some more in a little bit. Uh, and I don't exactly remember when I fell in love with that instrument. Um, I remember as long as I wanted to play music, it was the saxophone. There was no other instrument I considered for a moment, going all the way back to the fifth grade when I started. And so I picked that instrument and began that journey. And it's, uh, it's not a secret that playing an instrument shapes you tremendously. It shapes how you think. It shapes how you act. It shapes your ability to eventually get up in front of people on a regular basis and not be terrified by the experience. It's shaped my business as I go out and do consulting work for companies as a creative individual. Um, it's shaped a lot of who I am. And so when you train to be a performer and when you train to be a musician, you know, you learn to be really, really comfortable in typically uncomfortable settings. And I think that it can be easy to look at musicians and artists and, and go, wow, what's it like to have that life? Or what's it like to be able to just get up in front of people and stand there and perform or, or, or talk? And sometimes it's really fun. Sometimes it's terribly excruciating. I remember uh, my master's recital jury. So I had to give a recital to finish my master's degree. It's the combination of two years of preparing and practicing. And if you don't pass it, you're done. There's, there's not much of a second opportunity. It's two years of work for, for one 55-minute performance. And if that performance is not very good, you spent a lot of years doing something that uh, maybe you should have rethought. So being nervous in situations is not something that you can afford to have. You have to be comfortable in uncomfortable settings. But then when you finish that school, you realize maybe this isn't all that great. At least it was for me. Maybe being a musician isn't all that rewarding. There's not much of a regular career trajectory. I don't really have W-2 income that I can rely on and march steadily on towards retirement and go down to Florida with my parents in a basementless home. Um, and it's often filled with a lot of self-doubt. Even though musicians can be very confident in front of people because you're trained to do that, like I said, there's a lot of things going on inside the heart, inside your mind, that maybe are surprising to people who watch musicians or, or other kinds of performers get up in front. Um, there's a lot of quiet whispers of, of self-loathing disguised as objective criticism, right? You learn as a musician to be able to reflect on your own abilities objectively. Did I do that well or not? Was that in tune or out of tune? Was I in time or out of time? There's all these things that you learn to do, but in the back of your mind slowly creeps this, you're just not good enough. You're never going to make it. You're never going to amount to anything. And it's just always right there, nagging. And there's the unkind critics that you've had, professors or teachers, that said things to you in a way that 
damaged you, and damaged your view of your gift and your calling. And then there's the questions of, is this even worth it? No one seems to want to pay for music anymore, and there's not a lot of opportunities for live music, and 99 cents a track is not a great way to get rich. And so you go through this process of recalibrating what I call the barometer for personal success over and over and over again. Well, okay, if that's not what success looks like, what, is, what does it look like? And this happens over and over and over again in the life of any musician because you can never, ever achieve the success that you think you wanted. Now, I'm thankful in my life that I had faithful parents and that when I was in college, I spent a great deal of my time investing in, in God's work and in the kingdom because I knew that if I define my identity by whether or not I succeed or fail as a musician, I'm going to be a broken person for a very long time. God reached very early into my journey and pulled me into a place of stability in Christ to know that my identity is rooted in Him and not in any other place so that when I get on stage, I'm not justifying my existence in the world or I'm not justifying my, my artistry. I'm just doing what God has called me to do, the music that He gave me, the journey that He's put me on. And that journey, like I said, began a long time ago even before I picked the saxophone, my dad was a musician, played in lots of bands. He had a band of brothers. It was more heavy on the band part and not so heavy on the David Schwimmer part, if any of you have seen the show. Uh, but my sister and I grew up listening to my dad's music, and it was music from the 60s and 70s. And so as a child of the 80s, I was a little out of touch with um, the music of that time. There was no Madonna or Tiffany for me, not a lot of U2 or Motley Crue or I was listening to Elvis and the Beatles and Little Feet and Spirogyra and Tower Power and Stan Getz and Branford Marsalis, right? All these names that mean nothing to most of you, I dare imagine, except for, I know, Peyton, Tower Power, yeah. Um, and so when I joined the band in the fifth grade, I'd already been listening to music a lot, and I remember the moment that I decided I wanted to be a jazz saxophonist. There was a moment at the end of a, a performance of the all-district band ensemble. So every band in the entire district, I went to a huge school district in Wisconsin where I grew up. So there were hundreds and hundreds of kids playing band. This was still when we had large band programs in public schools, which another woe-is-me despair moment if you're a musician, right? The state of things. And I, there was a man, he was a man to me, he was probably a 16-year-old kid. Uh, he stood up in the middle of the, the after party in the gym and he took this jazz saxophone solo in the big band. And I was transfixed as a 10-year-old. I, I could, this is, a, I have to do this. This is the thing. I don't know how. I don't know what it's going to be like, but I've got to go do that. And so from there on, I, I pursued that pretty, pretty strongly for 11 years. I did other things. I ran track and cross country. and I did things like that. But more than anything, I was focused on being a musician and being a jazz saxophonist. And yet, seemingly at every turn in my life, I've been blocked from that path. I wasn't very good at jazz, it turned out. I struggled in undergrad to get into the top ensembles. I struggled to be accepted by the, the crew of jazz musicians and with their, you know, in that little friend group, that little clique. I, I wasn't a part of that. After I finished my master's degree, my wife and I, we moved here and we started going to church in New York City and I thought, yes, I'm finally, finally gonna get there, right? This dream I've had since I was a child, I'm finally gonna, you know, find a pathway to execute it. Didn't. All I met were singer-songwriters. Now, now Katie's laughing. I love singer-songwriters, though I've come to love them greatly, and it's been a joy to play with them, but it wasn't what I wanted. I wanted jazz musicians. Where are all the jazz musicians in the church I went to that we didn't have any jazz musicians? If I had only come here first, maybe things would have been different. But that was not the story God was telling. And so 
after having been blocked at every turn, maybe partly because I was afraid. I was afraid of the doubt and the voices in my past that I wasn't good enough or that I couldn't make it. Um, I decided, you know what, I just have to figure out who I am. Who am I supposed to be a musician, right? And this is sort of why this passage came to mind for another reason later, but it's like by faith, right? There was a sense of they just had to go, okay, God, this is what it is. I'm going to have to figure it out. So for me, it was by faith I accepted that what I was really good at was playing classical saxophone. I'd already finished my master's degree in classical saxophone and still hadn't accepted that was the path that God had picked for me. And I, I became happier after that. It was a little bit less of a, of a chore, and I felt less guilt or, or a sense of loss about not achieving my, my dreams. But there was always been this sense of, why this path? It just never made sense to me. How did I end up here after all this time of just dying to be a jazz musician and studying it and listening to it? They talk about musicians, what you are, what you listen to. And so if you listen to certain kinds of music, that's the music you end up you know, excelling at. Well, I'd listened to jazz since I was a small child. So it never made sense to me, and I, I struggle with that even still, even up to this week, actually. Why this path? How did I get where I am? How do I make sense of the story that God has been writing in my life? Now, I love, I love to read fiction. I don't know how many of you, how many of you love fiction versus, if like, of the two, you're going fiction over nonfiction nine times out of ten. How many of you love nonfiction over fiction? Wow. So we're way in the minority fiction readers. We should have a little... Fiction, Redeemer Hoboken Fiction Readers Support Group. Um, I particularly love to read, if you've been to Word Bookstore in Jersey City, I particularly love to read the kind of books that the hipsters over there call speculative fiction. Uh, I like to call it imaginative fiction, but most people just call it dork books. Fantasy and sci-fi stuff, that's kind of what stokes my fire when it comes to reading. I can burn through those books. I love them. I love the stories they tell. Uh, I love the worlds that are created. I love the imagination that's there. And one thing I've observed in all the fiction books I've read is that there seems to me to be always one chapter in that book. There's one chapter that kind of ties it all together where something happens and you're like, oh, now I get it. It's not the most important thing. It's not the biggest thing. It's not the denouement. It's not the high climax of the story. It's not that last action scene where the good guy wins or dies and, or whatever else happens. It's some other thing. Um, and it's just that one little bit that you think about the rest of the time you read that book. There are, there are two um, such things that I think of from books recently. I read a series by a friend, Brent Weeks, the Lightbringer Trilogy, excellent if you like reading nerd fiction. And, and it was chapter 51 of book three, and I'll never forget chapter 51. I instantly recall it. Chapter, 11, um, chapter 26 of the book Station Eleven. I recently finished, was such a chapter for me where there was just this little kernel of something that, that stood out, and I'll, and I'll never forget it. And then, of course, there was um, chapter 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring. And there's a quote from that chapter that I want to read. This passage of that book has shaped me in, in a profound way. The truth that Tolkien wrote into that moment, it's just this little, little clip of a story. It says, Frodo is complaining about the time that is his, right? He's been given the ring, and it's this thing he's got to go do, and it's no more shire for him and hanging around and smoking pipes and drinking beer. He's got to go on this terrible, terrible adventure. And he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf replies to him, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. 
All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And that's a profound line for me, because like I mentioned, it's really easy to complain about the music of this time. For a live, for a performing musician, how hard it is, or for a classical saxophonist, what few opportunities are. It's really easy to fall into that sense of entitlement, that I was due a different time. Why me? Why this time? And it's always easier to recognize, of course, those things in someone else's story. It's easy to see that happening in Frodo. It's easy to see it in chapter 51 of the Lightbringer uh, trilogy. It's much harder to recognize it in our own story. It's much harder to remember how God has been with us, writing our story over and over and over again. It's really easy to get fixated on the wrong things. And that's why I chose this passage. Right? That's why it's a, this amazing chapter of stories strung together by faith, by faith, by faith, one story after another, reminding us of the work that God does, reminding us of the stories. There's so many stories of God doing his incredible work that the writer of Hebrews can't even list them all. Just like, and, you know, I remember that guy and that guy. I can't even tell you all the stories that God is writing. God is not just some storyteller. He's the storyteller. And when Tony asked me to share my story, I had to confront that again, that God is a storyteller, writing stories in our lives, writing stories in the world. Stories where, of course, Christ is the hero. And I had to start reflecting again on that. And I'm still, it's like, I'm sure of how I got here. How did I get here? How did I get to that instrument and the kind of music that I can play? And Tony, of course, was a part of this. He said, I want you to play something because you're a musician. I want you to share some music with the people. And so I thought long and hard, and there's any number of pieces I could play from all the years I studied. Some of them are much more complicated than others, and so I was trying to avoid those um, simply for the fact that I was trying to avoid them. But there was one piece that stood out in my mind, a beautiful piece that I've never played, mostly because in my old world it would have been too saccharine. It wouldn't have been hip. It wouldn't have been, it wasn't like dark and gritty and all the things that sort of high-minded um, in intellectuals at academic institutions of music value, right? The hard to access and the, the really um, abstract. It wasn't one of those, and so I've never played it. But I've always loved this piece, and that's when it hit me. I remembered when I got um, a particular CD. I don't know, we can go up to the next slide, whoever's clicking. There's a CD cover image of a CD here. I remember when I got this CD when I was when I was a kid. I must have been 11 or 12. Somebody gave this to me because they knew I played saxophone. And now Branford Marsalis is a jazz saxophonist. And so somebody who gave this CD to me probably thought they were giving me a, a jazz saxophone record. Turns out this is not a jazz saxophone record. This is classical saxophone. And the piece that I'm going to play is on this record. And when I thought about that piece and I thought about that record, I thought about that moment and how transformative that moment was in my life when I was a small child. I had no idea the impact that listening to this CD over and over and over again, and I could not stop listening to this CD as a kid. I would put it on at night, I'd fall asleep listening to it, I'd get up in the morning, I'd put it on again. I was transfixed by the music on this record. Even though I wanted to be a jazz I had thought that all I ever wanted was to be a jazz saxophonist. It was this CD that had a profound impact on my musical journey. So now it started to make sense. It started to make sense why I ended up at this moment. How God sowed something so young that I just, I wasn't looking because I hadn't stopped 
to reflect. I hadn't looked back and looked for what God was doing in my life. For the little things. Those little moments that maybe you've never seen before. And if it weren't for this moment, I might never have done it. If it weren't for Tony asking me to do something out of the ordinary from what we would normally do as a church or what I would normally do as a worship leader or an elder, if I hadn't taken that opportunity, I might never have seen God writing that chapter, that small chapter in my life. And I, I wouldn't have made sense of my journey even right now, at this moment, because now you're a part of this journey, right? You're now a part of my story. Because if it weren't for this, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been shown what God wanted me to see about how he's been with me and he's been faithful to me. And you're going to hear me play this piece for the first time. Well, not technically. We rehearsed it earlier. For the first official performance, I mean, some people were here, but the first official performance of, of this song that has had such a powerful impact on my life, it's going to be here, it's going to be today. That makes this, for me, one of those defining moments of my life. Simple as it might seem, just sharing a reflection about my journey on a Sunday without water. It is, I will digress, it is amazing how much one has to go to the bathroom when one knows that the bathrooms are now unavailable to you. It's just like right in there. The title of this piece is called Emmanuel. God with us. The song that when I was a small child has shaped so much of who I've become, unbeknownst to myself, is God with us. And when I thought about that, I thought, he sure is. And he sure was, and he sure will be. He was with me then when somebody gave this to me because he had a plan and story for me. He's with me now as I go to play this piece with our amazing musicians at this church. And he'll be with me then. Wherever that goes, wherever my story takes me from here, he'll be with me. So as we play this piece, you guys can come up. Um, as we play the piece, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about your story. I want you to think about what's God telling through your life about him and your relationship to him. What are maybe some of those moments that you've just always been puzzled over? I wonder why this happened in my life. Our God is not a God of accidents. He's a God of purpose. He's a God that is intentional. He's a sovereign God who loves us and who is working out our lives and journey with him. Think about that for a moment while we play. After we play, Tony will, will come up and introduce the, the next part of our service. What's your story? <laughs> 